Welcome to series two of the Social Care Podcast, Sharing Stories, with me, Audrey Moore, and David Bagnell, aka Baggy. This podcast is for the benefit of anyone working in or studying social care. We like to chat with interesting people in the social care world and hear their stories. Welcome to the new episode of the Social Care Podcast, Sharing Stories. And we're delighted, myself and Audrey, to have Brian Penny back again, who is a specialist speaker in resilience. He joined us before at Social Care Ireland conference and did a small piece. And we asked him back and we were delighted to say that he found some time in his programme to come and join us and have an informal chat. How are you, Brian? How are you doing? Delighted to be here, David. Thanks a lot. So would you like to just give us a, a little short synopsis of who you are in case people haven't heard the earlier piece? As you said, Brian Penny and my story is the work that I do now. It really is. So I I struggled with a lot of trauma as a, as a young uh, infant and as a kid. And it sort of landed me with a, a crippling anxiety. Uh, I wouldn't say I never got diagnosed, but it was an anxiety disorder. And I struggled massively as a young kid and I started doing drugs at the age of 13, 14, got into deep addiction at the age of 16, 17. And I kind of lost myself for many years. I was a heroin addict for 17 years, 15 years chronically addicted. And I was very lucky to have what I can only call luck, a shift in perspective. I was smacked back into reality, thankfully, when I was 35 years of age. And I don't know what happened, but I began looking through a different lens I seen the world from a different perspective and I went on to do a degree in psychology a master's and a PhD in neuroscience and psychology and I suppose what I'm doing now is I'm taking my lived experience and my research my academic expertise and I develop programs for schools for uh, corporates trying to help people to navigate their own lives so I don't know whether that was quick quick yeah, or, or not quick that's <laughs> grand I don't know if, I, if my sound is okay but um, Brian, I read your book since we met last. Ah, okay. I've read Bonus Time. Uh, it's it's the only book you've written, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. 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 Not not the last. Not the last. There's a few not more. Not the in. last. The first, but not the last. And I was, in some ways, I have to say, I was horrified by some of the mm-hmm. stuff in there, and in other ways, I was astounded at how far you've come since the start of your journey since your teenagehood and for anyone who really wants to get a deeper understanding of how somebody falls down that rabbit hole into addiction I'd really recommend that they read it um but I'm wondering what was it very cathartic for you to write that book it was it really was when I found recovery I had that shift in perspective and I felt very energized and very happy, but I hadn't delved deep into the more challenging emotions. I hadn't really intellectually, I knew the damage that I caused my parents, especially my mom and my sister, as you know, from reading the book, emotionally scarring them because they cared so much for me, you know, that way. And it was only when I read the book that I felt the full force emotionally of the pain that I caused, especially when I was chatting to my mom about some of the challenges she faced, leaving her in a car, crying while I was gone collecting drugs, and just the pain that she struggled with as well. So, like, it knocked me for six. I had such a strict deadline on that book near the end, but I had to take a week off because I just was emotionally hit so hard. But it was just that the... I have a great relationship with my family and it was a good relationship for the first five years of my recovery. But when I start writing that book, 
it just brought our relationship to a whole new level. Like it really did. It helped us to get more uh, connected uh, deeply. We could speak about things in a much more intimate way. We can talk. We're still not brilliant at it. We're not a hugging family. We're not an affectionate family. But it just changed our relationship to another level. And for me personally, it was so cathartic. It really was. It was like like writing a memoir is like the Mount Everest of journaling. Like it really is. I'd nearly uh, invite everyone to, to write the story of their life to get that. And it was very cathartic. It really was. Are you ever afraid that people are going to judge you based on what you've written in the book? No. So Lynn, Lynn Rowan is a good pal of mine, Senator Lynn Rowan. And Lynn wrote a book as well. And when I was writing the book, Lynn said something to me that just really stuck. She says, speak your truth no matter what. And like I, I sold drugs to fund me addiction. And I thought I was ever going to leave that out. But that's part of my journey. It's what I've done. Now, I don't try to defend myself to saying I sold drugs to fund my addiction that's just the truth of it to be quite honest but like if people are going to judge me because of that like addiction at its core is an emotional and psychological pain and that people tend to do whatever it takes to relieve that pain part of my journey was selling drugs for that and if people judge me on that they judge me on that it's i can't control that but what I found, Audrey, I really have, like, when I reached out to, like, uh, influential leaders and CEOs, I gave them a warts and all account of my life. I gave them my book. I've given these CEOs my book. I just let them let them judge what they want if they're going to judge that. And I think as a result of that, I don't feel the stigma and I don't experience the stigma. And I haven't been really... I haven't really been judged in a stigmatizing way either. Like I've reached out to some of Ireland's most influential leaders and they bring me in. They're my friends, mentors and customers now. They bring me into their corporate arena to help them with the uh, with challenges that their staff might be facing. I have a senior CEO of a big banking institution that comes to me for advice on their emotions. They know my whole story. So I think stigma can be, I won't say it's in the eye of the beholder because it's very real. But if you go around feeling stigmatized against, you're going to create a lens where you're going to feel it more. So I think that's something that I didn't allow that to venture in. And it's not something I really feel. It's interesting what you were saying about the pain of being in addiction. But what I got from the book was the pain of coming out of it was horrendous as well. That pain of going through the withdrawals um, and even the bits where you were in denial for so long. But I suppose it shows great resilience for you to have come this far, I think. And that's one of the things that I really would like you to talk about today, because in social care, first of all, many social cares are non-judgmental. That's that's basically what we do. We're working in the life space of people, people maybe like yourself from years ago, but they tend not to be judgmental. And there's a lot of empathy as well. So, so people tend to take on other people's um, pain and struggles and their trauma, secondary trauma. You know, I'm sure you're aware of all this stuff. And so it can be really hard to maintain their resilience in the face of all that. And I'd love for you to talk to us to maybe help people who are struggling in that area. My whole idea on resilience, so I've sort of, I, I do a lot of work in the area of resilience, but I actually don't like the word resilience. I tend to think about it as moving beyond resilience. That's the wording I use. It's like real resilience. And for me, that means using challenges and adversity as fuel for growth. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of this. Like imagine you get a virus, your body creates antigens to fight that virus in the future. So the challenge of the virus 
strengthens the body. If you go to the gym and you lift weights, like the reason why we call people getting ripped is because their muscles are actually ripping. It's the adversity of the pain of that makes them physically stronger. It's the same with mental uh, tasks as well. When you learn the mental friction of that, you learn, you get smarter as a result. So the essence of our realities is that what makes what can cause you a challenge can make you stronger. And many, many times. And my lived experience was that as well. The biggest challenges of my life became the biggest areas of growth. And I often go back into, into my story of addiction. It was a story of anxiety that resulted in escaping from using drugs to escape anxiety. Anxiety today is my greatest friend. It's my asset. It's my ally. I use it. I still experience anxiety, but I've changed my relationship with it. So today... I have a toolbox that helps me to deal with anxiety, to deal with stress, to deal with negative self-talk, to deal with limiting beliefs, to deal with any of the challenges that come. And it's by flexing the tools in that toolbox that helps me to utilize them going forward. So back to the, the challenges in, in social care, what, what I would say is like, let's say the symptom of secondary trauma is that they feel anxious and they feel stressed. That's the challenge. So you can dig into a toolbox and say, right, what can I do for this? Whether it's exercise, whether it's breathing techniques, whether it's mindfulness, whether you need to take a week off and rest because your body needs to recover, maybe that's what you need. Or maybe if you're someone that is really overly sensitive, maybe you have to put boundaries in within your work to stop yourself getting completely overwhelmed. Because at the end of the day, if you're so overwhelmed that you can't function properly you're not going to be a help to anybody else so compassion and empathy are superpowers but you can also become a kryptonite if people don't put boundaries or guardrails in place so it's what can they actually do and if they learn that task that's real resilience because they're learning from the challenge i love that and we always talk when we're teaching in social care about the toolbox to do the job and in that the relationship it's all about the relationship but having a personal toolbox to help build your resilience and help build your ability to overcome adversity or whatever is going on that's impacting on your well-being. I think that's really, really good. So in your toolbox, you have what? Meditation? God, I, don't, I actually don't. Exercise? Medit- yeah, exercise. Breathing. Exercise. <laughs> can, can I just, people know how important exercise is. But they don't really know because the benefits, I am going down a rabbit hole on exercise and it is good for practically every process and mechanism within your body. It's Alzheimer's, it's cancer, it's for longevity of life, it's for every challenge that we face in life that our physical bodies face exercise provides a, a barrier towards that as well it, it, from a mental perspective it reduces anxiety it reduces depression if exercise was a drug we wouldn't believe it because it would be too good to be true so exercise is so important to my life but the toolbox is great but what i'd like to emphasize here is that if you get good sleep good nutrition and you exercise you cut 90%, you cut the head off all of the most important uh, important tools. And what that does leave as well is more of a spiritual kind of perspective as well. That's where meditation can fall into that box. But my own personal one is exercise is really crucial for me. And I would exercise five, six days a week. Some days it's a bit lighter exercise because I need rest, but it's really important for me, energy levels and me health, physical and mental health. But I would have a little morning routine as well. It's only a three minute morning routine. And within that, it's a minute of breath work. 
a minute of affirmations where I just tell myself that I'm happy, positive and carefree. That's my affirmation. Language is a vehicle for emotions. There's, there's a line I love. It's a, it's a quote from a, a poet called Hafiz. The words we speak become the house we live in. If you tell yourself you're a piece of crap every single day, you're going to feel like a piece of crap. So language is really powerful. A lot of my research went into that. So, so simple little affirmations can be powerful. So it's a minute of breath work, a minute of affirmations and a minute of gratitude where I delve and feel the people in my life it's like visual hugs of the loved ones in my life and i visualize the feelings i have with them and seriously that's three minutes every single morning but i set my intentions for the day and all of these tap into biological and neural mechanisms and it's like i'm smiling from the inside out so that's something that i do exercise and my little uh, morning routine and then it's just surrounding yourself with people that are going to make you feel good too as best you can you know it's your relationships will really define you as well i'd love to be able to do all that i like i live in that space you're talking about I wake yeah. up in the morning i have a busy lifestyle i'd love to have the energy to exercise but i i genuinely don't have the drive to do it and i'm envious of people like you do you know what the thing is so one of the challenges it's interesting you say you wish i had the exercise for me energy creates energy so when i exercise it gives me energy i i actually energy is one of my core values and the reason why i exercise is because the energy that it gives me now the challenge is and this is sort of unfair in a way but for people that don't exercise or haven't exercised in a long time it's nearly aversive at the start that that is the challenge but if you get past the 12 week barrier and bring some sort of exercise into your life and the, and the key is to start small like baby steps smart start with walk and start with short jogs or the most important thing is to do something that you actually love. Play squash, badminton, tennis, find a sport, make it, don't make it exercise, make it play, make it fun, but find what works for you because that's the only thing that is actually going to stick. And what you may find over time that these habits and these routines kind of can stick then over time. And then if it just becomes what you do rather than something that you need to push through. And that, that really is the key. So I think I find that when you work in a business, which is what social care is, where you have the a shared common stress levels, anxiety, workloads, um, people being out due to burnout and whatever like that. You can have the great intentions of doing it, doing your meditation, your walks, your hikes, your swimming, whatever it is. And then your life switches because you get a phone call to say, we need cover for this. Or can you go and do this because somebody else can't do it? And because of the kind of people who work in the environments that we work in, we do it. Yeah. And it's finding the strength to say to your employer, your boss, no, I can't do it. But then you're thinking of your clients as well. So that's the dilemma that I find. And I'll say for myself in that way, that I, I'm in the di dilemma that I know what I need. I know what my clients need. And then it's what your employers expect from you. It's finding that balance, the middle ground between all three. It is a challenge. I think one of the things, the reason why I have a three-minute morning routine is because it just takes three minutes. So what I'd say to some people as well, it's really the essence of setting your intentions can be really powerful. So even one minute of gratitude, and I do that in my bed as soon as I wake up. So it doesn't impact my day in any way whatsoever. I also have a habit tracker on my phone that I track every single day and I tick boxes. So I'm very aware when I'm not following through my habits. So these are nice little life hacks that can keep you in check. 
But I'll give you an example of my own life. Like I went on a holiday to Italy, then I was working in Toronto, then I was down in Kerry for a few days, and all of a sudden it just knocked me out of whack. And it's really hard to get back into it. It's really hard to get knocked out of it when you're in it, but it's so hard to get back into it when you're there as well. And I wish jobs like this, like imagine in social, every social care worker in Ireland was all of a sudden told that for a half an hour every day they had to practice self-care and they would not get paid unless they put that half hour in as part of their day, I would say the levels of performance and empathy and compassion would rise massively. And that is the reality of it. It's it's nearly, it's not urgent because you can skip it until tomorrow, but it's more important than many of the other tick boxes that we do. And one thing as well I'd say, Dave, is like uh, it, it doing it in the morning, I think is really key because when you get up in the morning, just get up a half an hour earlier, and to do the morning routine and a 20 minute exercise. Now I know it's really, really hard to get yourself into that mindset, but most people out there will have at least spent 20 minutes to 30 minutes scrolling on social media or doing something that doesn't serve them. So go to bed a little bit earlier. You can make the time up in the morning before work kicks in and then nothing can really get in your way. Because I, I really hear that if somebody's looking for help, you're going to answer that call for. So it's nearly setting the, the structure of your life to work for you in that environment. Well, for me, it's I grab my Vespas. I have five of them, and I just go off for a blast on that, and a bit of music in my earphones, and that settles me down and whatever. So, like, I'm halfway to the job, and that I I'm fairly positive about myself, and I have a bit of confidence. It's the other thing is saying no. That's I have to learn that. And there was a time, Maggie, where I did that as well, and I know it's easy to say because I'm not working frontline right now, but. When I started exercising regularly, I really felt the difference in not just my physical health, but my mental health. And Brian, you spoke at the conference about the neurological impacts of doing exercise every day as well, didn't you? And I found that very interesting, although you did go very deep into the science on it. I did. And it's really, it's a thing called the kinurinian pathway. It is a little bit of a, a bit of a mouthful. And what, what I will say is, if you exercise you will release more neurotransmitters within your brain that make you feel good. And the thing is, stress is inevitable. So we need certain mechanisms within our brain to cope with stress. And if you are not exercising, those mechanisms are, and I'm simplifying it here, is they are overly activated. And not only do you lack the neurotransmitter called serotonin to make you feel better you also create other compounds within the brain that are neurotoxic and are related to mental health challenges so exercise just ticks so many boxes in terms of making you feel better reducing inflammation reducing other uh, acids toxins within your brain that can have a huge impact within your brain so there's so many elements of exercise and we're, we were born to move we really were but all of a sudden we've created this society where we get escalators everywhere like i've often been in airports where people are queuing up for the escalator and i i have a rule i don't do escalators i use the stairs and people they're perfectly fit they get they're walking along but they wait for the escalator we've lifts everywhere we've scooters flying around the streets technology is stopping us from moving it's making us sit down more it's giving us foods that are so delicious and sugar packed and full of fat that it's the temptations are too much so we're nearly fighting against technology in terms of food technology in terms of just technological advances with machinery and we need to fight back we, we really really do 
Well, I'll commit to starting tomorrow. I'll say it here. I'll start me three minutes in the morning. And Brilliant. Just back from the Camino where I walked 120 Ooh. kilometers in six days. So No way. I think leaning into fears, leaning into stuff. Again, challenge. Adversity is fuel for growth. Like that, that's real resilience right there. Like, you know, because yeah, you're, you're putting yourself out. Yeah. There was loads of people who actually went by themselves and a huge range of people from all over Ireland, all ages from like 22 up to 70s. And yeah, it was fantastic now. I'd love to do it again next year, but it's hard to leave the kids like, you know. Yeah, but, it's a week. It's a long one. It is a long, <laughs> long time. But maybe himself will come with me next year. So That's it. Bring them all. Kids yeah. and all. <laughs> so yeah. sorry, we're after going off on a tangent there. podcast is sponsored by Trust Social Care Consultancy. If you want to get in touch with Audrey, please go to www.trustconsultancy.ie. Now back to the podcast. Any stories you want to share with us, Brian? Stories I'd like to share. Do you know what? I had a really interesting story there recently. So I done a talk. I done a talk on values. Was it when we were in social care? Ireland? Was the talk on values? It was. Wasn't I think it? so. Yeah. Yeah. Talks, yeah. Didn't you? Yeah. So one of them was a workshop actually. But one one of the talks I do. It's a keynote, a favorite keynote of mine, and it's around creating space between the inevitable challenges of life and our emotional reaction to it. And when I bring up this talk, I often talk about a story of me in Canada. So I have, a, I have an interesting relationship with Canada. So with my family, we emigrated to Canada when I was five years of age. And unfortunately, through a few little dodgy dealings with my dad, we got deported from Canada. So I actually had a police escort coming home on the plane as a five-year-old kid coming back from Canada. So in 2017, I was going back to do a t- an academic talk with, for Trinity College at a big world conference, my first ever time doing public speaking. And I was nervous, but excited at the same time. And when I landed in Montreal, they were trying to deport me back because they had the record of me uh, being deported as a five-year-old kid. And they were going to send me back. And I'd done a lot of work on myself at this stage and having a chat with the girl that was telling me I had to go back. And she asked me, she says, can I ask you why you're so relaxed? Back to Ireland. They were sending me back. Like I was letting everybody down. They were sending me back to Ireland. I wasn't getting into Canada to do the talk. Trinity College had paid a couple of thousand to get me to do this talk. And she asked me why I was so relaxed about the situation. And I says, look, I'm over here to do a talk on emotion regulation. I used to be addicted to heroin. I found recovery. I'm now in academia. And I wouldn't really be walking me talk if I was freaking out in the airport now and reacting emotionally. I'm over here to talk about that subject. And she actually gave me a pass. She says, you know what? I'm going to do you a favor. And she let me go into Montreal for the weekend. Now, I was back over in Canada. I thought this was all sorted out. Two weeks ago, I was flying over to Toronto to do a big keynote talk for a corporate company. And I landed in Toronto after 24 hours, no sleep, uh, 2 a.m. Toronto time, 10 a.m. Irish time. And again, he says, I'm sorry, we can't let you into Toronto. This time, he says, "It's there's a flight at half eight tomorrow. We're going to have to put you in a detention center until your flight is available. 
And I start laughing. I'm thinking this is another story. I start laughing at the guy and the guy is like, I've never seen anyone so happy that to be getting put into a detention center, sir. So I start having a bit of banter with this fella. And it turned out that I says, look, is there anything I can do? This happened in Montreal before. I'm actually over here to do a keynote talk about getting the port from Canada. Is there anything I can do? And he's like, sorry, sir, we, we don't break the law like those people in Montreal. So he was having none of it, right? Until I took out my resilience brochure and my book because I was trying to show him that I'm not a flight risk. And he turns around and he says, oh, you're into resilience. I like resilience. I'm all about resilience. With that, he went off and talked to a superior, came back and gave me a buy until the next day. Now, he took me passport and he said there'd be a warrant out for me arrest if I didn't come back to the airport at four o'clock. But he let me in to do the keynote talk. But both of those examples, Audrey, is basically... Challenges in life are inevitable. They could be COVID-19. It could be getting deported from Canada. It could be uh, relationship issues. They are absolutely inevitable. But your emotional reaction to them determines the outcomes of your life. So it's an ability to regulate your emotions, creating a space between the challenge and your reaction to it. That's the game changer. So it's just, it's fundamentally an important tool in my life. And it brings you back to breath work, back to meditation, back to walks in nature, back to exercise to reduce the baseline reactivity within you as well you will be able to react in a more proactive manner and it's a really really powerful powerful i think it's a great story for me and i like to use with other people but it's just respond don't react that's the real message there that's something i've been practicing a lot lately it's it's back to victor frankel as well and the the space between the stimulus and the response big time yeah Oh yeah, was I reference him in the talk actually? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And sometimes though, when you're when you're in a very heightened emotional state, it can be difficult to to even remember that. So you have to practice it at, in the low points. And something else that you said um at the conference as well was about the flight. Maybe you'd tell this better. Yeah, it's like uh, people used to ask me, like it sort of came it came from a story. People used to ask me, do you ever have a bad day? Because I am generally on and generally energized and driven. And people said to me, do you ever have a bad day? And I used to sort of be a little bit disheartened by telling them, no, I don't really have a bad day because I, I, that's not what they wanted to hear. I was like, they, they wanted me to say, no, I have a lot of crap days as well. But the reality was that I didn't really have bad days. But what I came to realize was that I had lesser days I just wouldn't necessarily call them bad days. And the reason is, like, imagine a plane flying at 10,000 feet. Your average person's flying at 10,000 feet. Sometimes stuff happens in their lives. Their kids might get sick. Their parents might get sick. They might have financial difficulties. So all of a sudden, they drop to 8,000 feet, 6,000 feet. Maybe then they get sick from all of the challenges. They're down at 2,000 feet. And maybe something catastrophic happens in their life. And all of a sudden, they hit the ground. They're in burnout. They need medical care, whatever that is. And I start to think of myself through the tools that I practice, through exercise, through nutrition, through breath work, through the various tools that I implement in my life. It raises me to 12, 14, 18, 20,000 feet. So when I'm in a good space and I'm implementing these good habits and good routines into my life, I'm at 20,000 feet. So I still have the challenges of life, the inevitable challenges of life. But it might knock me down to 18, 16 or 14,000 feet. I'm never in danger of hitting born out or hitting into the ground. So I have lesser days. They're just not bad days. So there was a line I heard one time, because I often hear a lot of people saying, oh, I know about gratitude. I know about meditation. I know exercise is good for me. 
But knowledge is not where the game is played. The game is played through action. And when you act and you bring these positive routines into your life, positive relationships into your life, it lifts you higher. And that's when you have that protective buffer when life's challenges knock on your door, because they will knock on your door. I'm just kind of uh, thrown a bit because um, like I, I didn't really know what to expect from what we were going to talk about. But it, it's, it's generally made me look at a few things in my life and my work life as well as my personal life because um as I say I, I know people I work with who are having similar difficulties and I try to understand them and it's it's maybe say if I try and understand my own a bit better maybe I can help them understand what's going on with them as well so I have to start with me and I think that's what I got from you the first time when I heard you speaking at a conference was that it comes from your own start where you start from and where you change. And as I say, I will start with the exercise tomorrow. I will make it tomorrow my first day. That That's really what I've taken from. I really enjoy this because I say it, it's kind of knocked me off my center as, you know, you, you think you have things set in your heads and then you hear somebody discussing something and it throws up an idea. And uh, that's good. That's very good. I'd, lo- I'd love to just add in there as well, because I think it's really important. And something you mentioned as well, that it's like it can be really, really hard when you're you're struggling, you're demotivated. Like the essence of depression is just a lack of motivation. Nothing seems good. It's like, what's the point of anything? And some people have levels of that. You just don't feel good. Anytime I get sick, I'm off, I feel like I'm wasting time if I have a dose around like that. And I often, it gives me an insight into what people can feel when they're demotivated. Because a lot of the same biological markers of being sick are the same as depression. Your, your body is inflamed and you feel demotivated. And sometimes it's really, really hard to get the train moving like when the train has incredible momentum it's very hard to stop it It can run through brick walls but when a train is stopped even a little two by four can stop that moving so it's just getting the ball moving is really really key and what i would say to people is it's just baby steps take small steps because if you try to aim too high your motivation is just going to wane. So take baby steps, take small steps and try to build it up into a lifestyle change and be patient because it takes time to sort of develop these practices and to get that train moving where it's hard to stop. But it does happen if you have patience with it. No. Brilliant. Cheers. Brilliant. I'm going to be checking on you tomorrow, Baggy, to see if you did a bit of exercise. <laughs> bit, of, bit of accountability there. Brian, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you again. And thank you so much for giving us your time today. Um, I'm sure people will get a lot out of this episode. And listen, I hope to run into you again in the future because don't fail to make me think about things. Brilliant, <laughs> delighted. That was an absolute pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed it. And for the whole conference and everything, it was really great talking to you on it multiple occasions. Yeah. All the best. Have a good one. Bye bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode with Dr. Brian Penny. We are certainly left with a lot to think about from this episode. If you want to find out more about Brian's work, check out brianpenny.com I'm going to put the link in the podcast notes so you can take a look there if you want to learn more about Brian's story of addiction and recovery I would definitely recommend that you pick up a copy of his book called Bonus Time as always we love to get feedback for the podcast so please feel free to leave a message or email us at the socialcarepodcast at gmail.com We also have an Instagram page now, The Social Care Podcast. So go ahead, give us a like and follow or any of that great stuff. 
We're coming to the end of series two of this podcast. Join us next week for our final episode of the series when we invite back Cindy and Anita from Sail Training Ireland. They're going to tell us more about their work on the tall ships and it's not to be missed. Take care. Thank you.